Hello, and welcome to our new episode of Vagabond Actors. I am Andrea Helene. I am in Mallorca, Spain, and I am joined, as always, by my favorite acting coaches, Gary Condis in London. Hi, Gary. Hello, Andrea, our favorite Mallorcan. <laughs> I am carousing the island looking for places for us to finally meet up when we are able to do so. Fantastic. Yeah. I can't wait. It's a tough job. I've already talked to my wife that that's going to be our trip when we oh. can finally go somewhere. That's oh, going to be our trip is to go stay with you. Yeah. You're going to host us. Yes. We're going to take over two bedrooms yes. and eat oranges on the oh, beach. I love that. And do a podcast. And, and do, a do a podcast. That's right. With a live studio audience. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and welcome, of course, to Brian Casp, our fearless leader from Prague, Czech Republic. Oh. Brian. Hi, Andrea. How are you holding up there, huh? Oh, you know, it's good. You know, we're mostly staying at home, so it's all good. Everything's good. Lovely. Well, this week's episode is interesting. You know, we're always asking for our listeners to send their questions their way, and I'm happy to say that they've been doing that lately. But before we get to that, we're going to check in with each other and see what kind of creative activities we've been up to since we last spoke. So, Brian, what have you been doing this week? This week has been a very interesting lesson in saying yes to things and seeing where that leads. A couple of weeks ago now, maybe someone in my class was asking about different ways that we can make a living besides working as an actor on stage, which obviously we can't really be doing now, or in front of the camera. And we talked about that a little bit, about the different income streams. And this week, I had two opportunities come my way that weren't directly being an actor, but are close enough in the periphery that I thought, oh, this is a good opportunity. And they might not be opportunities that I would ordinarily say yes to, but I thought, well, let's, let's see where this goes. One of them is to help kind of translating and polishing dialogue in a film that the director wants to dub into English. And the other one is a director friend of mine is writing a film that is in English, but he's Czech and he wrote it in Czech and it's already been translated. And it's basically copy editing and making sure that the English in the script is up to snuff in terms of if they want to send it out to producers that would want to maybe come on board the project. So I've been kind of coming on board with those projects this past week. And, you know, it's not exactly what I had thought that I would set out to do, but these kind of opportunities have come about because I've said yes to other opportunities. Brian, I have a book recommendation for you. Did you ever read uh, Shonda Rhimes's book called The Year of Yes? No, I haven't. Oh, I think it's right up your alley. Okay. She made a conscious decision that she would say yes to things because as prolific and amazing and powerful as she is and as forceful a personality as she is, she actually has a very strong sort of interior and protected life. And mm -hmm. in order to get past certain fears and hesitations, she just made a commitment to herself that she would say yes to anything that came her way. And it was really transformative. And so she wrote about it. And it's a great book. It's a really great book. It's entertaining, but also thought provoking. And uh, I think you would like it very much. Cool. I'm, uh, I'll am mm -hmm. check it out. Thank you. Gary, what have you been up to? Well, after a lifetime of saying yes to everything, I've kind of started to put the brakes on otherwise because <laughs> I just got me in trouble. That's why I've got no hair left. 
Um, <laughs> but um, no, it's great because we've talked about it in various guises, but it's about maintaining a life within the industry mm. while still earning money, which is a best case scenario. Sometimes you don't always, but most of the time you get to a point where whatever you're doing, you should be earning some money at some point. But it enriches the whole thing. It's like a whole, isn't it? It's like a holistic body that you are feeding. And, you know, if the primary pursuit that you have, whether it's acting, directing, teaching, or whatever it is, isn't perhaps happening right now, and other things are related that come up, it's like, well, yeah, do it. It's still exercising your actor's teacher's mind in a way that is very healthy. And you never know where anything is going to lead. There is that too. And why wouldn't you be if it's something that is still within the world? Like you said, it's not exactly the thing that you would pursue right now, but there's degrees, isn't there? When something comes to me without any effort, I'm more inclined to kind of go, yeah, okay, I can fit that in. Yeah, why not? Yeah. It feels like a gift, right? And what are you up to these days, Gary? Well, this week I watched back a film that I'd coached some actresses on about domestic abuse. It's called Losing Grace, and it was an all-female creative team. Uh, I think I was the only male involved, although I wasn't in the production. And it was a mother and daughter played by real-life mother and daughter. And the daughter was about 11, 12, I think. And it was just very interesting being part of that process because I was kind of on my toes in a way that I might not have been with just two actors who didn't know each other and come together for the production. It was mother and daughter and, you know, that carries a lot of prose, but also there's things that perhaps gets in the way or at least needs finer work around. So it was a very delicate process, but also very interesting You know, at times I had to be a lot more delicate and a lot more sensitive and take a lot more time. And in other ways, it was like, okay, we need to get tough here because this is a huge subject and there are some huge scenes and we need to get at it. And most of the time, the mother and daughter real life relationship helped. And it was like you got a lot for nothing, which was great. But occasionally it got in the way. So we had to use some imaginary stuff to get out of that that had nothing to do with their relationship. It was just very interesting to see what was retained on the screen because I wasn't on set. This was all prep work. And there were a a few scenes that bore no resemblance to the work we did. There were (laughs) some scenes that bore an exact resemblance to the work we did. And then there was other scenes that were kind of half and half. The more I'm doing this, the more I'm, I'm watching my clients on screen, I'm going, yeah, this has developed so much since we were in a studio together or on Zoom now together, but I can still see the kernel of it. Okay, yeah, you kept that, or I can see the origin of that. When you did your work with them, how old was the uh, was the daughter at the time when you were um, 13. So, I mean, I literally worked with them the lead up to shooting, and they shot last year, mm. just before the pandemic. So the daughter has now seen her work from a year ago? Yes. I'd be curious at her age to know how she reflects back on the preparation work that she did and the choices that she made given her age and how satisfied she is or intrigued by the process looking back on the finished project. Yeah, it will be very interesting to ask her her thoughts about that and, and actually pick her brains and go, well, you know, what what, what happened in that scene then? And what, you know, just yeah. out, of, out of curiosity, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Like you said, when we were talking a few weeks ago, it's always nice to see the fruits of your labor. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's always nice. Sometimes it might be painful (laughs) to see the fruits of your labor, but hopefully it's nice to see it, to see something come of it. Yeah. You know, we're at this arse end of the process. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The birth and the origins of it. But yeah, it is very satisfying to see how it ends up. 
Very nice. nice. Andrea, what about you? What have you been up to? I finished up teaching the round of Spoon River Anthology work with the Munich students. That was super interesting. They really pulled it together. They did some nice character work in some cases, which was fun. I would love to have more time to probe even more deeply with them, but I think they really got the hang of it. And it was nice to see over just really a three-week period how much they grew with that challenge. So that was a lot of fun. And having some meetings this week to take a look at what we can do here in Mallorca this spring. It's funny that you talk about this because I think it's been a little bit of a topic around here as well, choosing what to say yes to and investigating when I don't feel like saying yes, what that's about, pushing ourselves past what feels comfortable. I'm doing a lot more mindfulness these days and meditating consciously, which I never used to. But it's like sometimes you can get into a bit of a double bluff and going, I'm aware of this, but is this resistance or am I second calling myself on this? And do I act on it or do I not act on it? Well, I think sometimes it's just plain old resistance. And sometimes it's a little gnawing voice that tells you you better pay attention more closely to something. I think in my case, it's um, these questions of what's next loom still for me to some degree. Things have changed so much that I think that I'm still looking for where to drop anchor, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And so I'm either trying a number of different things and giving it a lot of energy, or I am doing a lot of thinking about it and dancing around it and considering it. It's like a recalibration. I mean, sometimes you got to just not do anything and mm-hmm. wait. <laughs> mm-hmm. And other times you've got to take action, haven't you? And I yeah. suppose it's deciding which is most appropriate. Yes, that's right. I think an interesting thing that happens, and this happens because I don't know in terms of our listeners, how many people feel like they're at the start of their career, how many people feel like their career is underway and they're kind of under sale with their career and just kind of listening to see what issues come up in the podcast. But I think you know, probably a fair amount of people who are listening feel like they're at the start of their career or, you know, they'd like it to grow more. And it's very common, you know, the the bulk of your career is not doing exactly what you thought it was going to be doing, mm-hmm. right? You're not moving from job to job in terms of being an actor and you are kind of in a what feels like a limbo. Mm-hmm. And then you might have two opportunities Like you don't know which one of them is going to lead you in the direction that you want to go in. Mm -hmm. It kind of feels like there aren't any threads that are pulling you in the direction that you want to go in, or there might be too many threads. I like the idea of the threads because that's how it feels. In some ways, there aren't enough. There are threads that I wanted to be sewing, and there are some things that I anticipated having great energy and zeal to create. And now I look at them from a slightly different angle. And so I'm Mm -hmm. I'm really asking myself where I want to put the energy in a full way, like sort of the way we look at it with characters, I suppose, like what really activates my gut and my body to action. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Often at the beginning, you may not know where you are and where you're going and Mm -hmm. you might kind of have a vague idea of what you want to achieve, but you don't really know how to get there. Right. Or you have some idea. And I just wanted to underline for people listening is that that is something that can happen at any time. Mm-hmm. That's something that can happen with actors who you might look at their careers and and you might think, well, they know exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Part of the agonizing and joyful journey that we're on is that we don't really know what's going to lead to the next step. 
All we really know is where we are at the moment, right, Gary, to lead back to your mindfulness. That's all we have really is what's happening right now. Yes. Yeah. You know? Yes. But there's always that balance, isn't there, of like, it's like a tightrope is like, do I move forward or do I just wait a little bit and see? Yeah. Yes, you know, you can do things and doors will open and you'll get somewhere. But then it's like, is that where you want to get to? Or don't mm. you know until you get there? And is it worth <laughs> spending the time just being action based? Or do you take a bit of time out to kind of just reassess, maybe strategize, do a plan and kind of go, you know what, I'm just going to wait a bit and let the land just settle. And it's that interplay between the two. Because I think if you wait right. too long, you miss. Mm-hmm. And if you do too much, you push away or you push exactly. too much or you make things happen where you don't want it to happen. So it's a very delicate interplay between the two of doing and not doing, <laughs> Yeah, you know, which it's very relevant to acting. Yes, entirely. What comes to mind is if you're in a scene and you are banging your partner over the head with your objective and you're pursuing that blindly to anything else that is happening, then you're very action-based and you're like a train, but <laughs> you're not really living it moment to moment. But right. then the opposite is, is if you don't go after something, it will pass you by. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's like Brian says, it absolutely doesn't leave you. Right. And I think there are a lot of people right now finding themselves in these kind of phases. I've had a number of conversations like this where other people have said, you know, I, I really feel like I'm in a huge questioning phase because of the nature of these phases that we go through naturally in our lives, you know, sort of biorhythms. And as we age and as we move through our lives, we come through these phases quite naturally. And now we're in this... A collective one. Yeah, that has been sort of imposed upon us. And, you know, there are people who are like, yeah, for the first two months, I was doing a self-tape every day. And I was listening to this and I was doing that. And, you know, my favorite musician was on every night at 9 p.m. And I listened to her for music for an hour. And, and then a year later are saying, I couldn't sustain that level of conscientious engagement. Mm -hmm. I had to take a breath. And in recognizing how much the world has transformed, I recognize that I am in, in the midst of a transformation. And either I've figured it out, I've cleaned out my life, I've like pivoted my business, whatever it is, or for a number of people, it's, I'm still trying to figure out what this new life looks like for me. I think it's yeah. very normal. And and for performers, as you say, who who are used to days that never really look alike, I think it's um, it's particularly a profound time. I think there is a lot of inner upheaval as well as outer upheaval. Yes. The good thing is that we're not in it alone. Right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> good. This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look. We all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner. And if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters, your audition and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, You can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors. You can get career advice from industry professionals and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. 
So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put Vagabond25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. Hi, my name's Emily and I was just wondering if you've delved into acting for certain style pieces. If a project has a certain language written, how best do you approach that as an actor? Is the main thing to get that language slash rhythm nailed? And how does the style inform my acting choices? I'm looking into Tony McNamara's work and he has a very specific style. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Emily, first of all, thank you. Chef Kiss. Yes. So let's talk about this idea of the language being very specific and how that informs our choices and our approach. Yes. Gary, what do you think about this? The thing is about with style, style is really the angle from which a certain reality is observed. It's like the author's view of reality, just like in painting. You know, you've got a Picasso cubist, you've got a Dali surrealist, you've got abstract expressionist, you've got all of these styles, which really is a point of view of the artist on how they see life and reality. And it's like saying to the audience in terms of a dramatic text, let's say, or comedic text, is like, these are the rules or conventions of my play or film. But what's important to understand is that to the characters, they are normal, these rules and conventions. And I think when addressing your role in terms of how much the style and language and genre affects you, for instance, Emily says, is the main thing to get the language and rhythm nailed first? And how does the style inform your acting choices? Well, you can actually go both ways. You can start inside out or you can go outside in. It all depends on what is an easier way in for you or at least a more understandable understandable way in for you. And you certainly can't dismiss the language or the rhythm, the style, let's say, and you have to honour it. But my question is, is at what stage of the process do you honour it? you got to honour it so it can be make or break the performance. But the danger is, for me, in my experience, is by just concentrating on playing the style and forgetting the human truths contained or buried underneath in the style, then it just becomes an empty parade of line readings, cliches, verbosity and sort of external acting. I mean, I directed a play once called Love by Murray Shizgal, an American play. It's at one at the same time, it's a piss take, but it's also a really reverential homage to absurdist theatre and playwrights like Samuel Beckett, Eugene Ionesco, Pinter, and all from that era. And because it's a, a sort of homage and piss take, it really is a larger-than-life play where the comedy is very broad and requires routines and things to be leaned on and there's a rapidity to some of the comedic sequences and all of that stuff. But the way I went about it, first of all, is we sat around and really understood it like we would work on it in like a naturalistic play. We really got to the human intentions, the reality of what was going on in the scene, what was required, like we would do, whether it was Shakespeare, whether it was a naturalistic play. And we did that and we understood it. Then we put it on its feet in a naturalistic way without considering style. And then we started to, once we understood it, then we started to push it towards style and make it broader and bigger 
And what happened there is it really maintained a truth. And it became funny because characters don't realize they're in a comedy. For them, it's just really high stakes and utmost importance and truth. So it kind of helped on that occasion as a director to get people to a sort of very real truth before we dealt with the style and then added the style on top and push it and edge it towards a a broader playing, a quicker playing, because of our understanding of what was really going on underneath all of the stylistic trappings. That's excellent. But then I've, as an actor, been part of sort of Shakespeare plays or Oscar Wilde or Noel Coward. There's a very stylistic convention there, and the director wanted us to do it straight away. And it was like, okay, well, I've got to kind of look at the scene myself, the truth. (laughs) And the questions that we would ask of any script, no matter what the style is, the ones that we've been over throughout all our podcasts, and really ask those myself. But then right from the first off, he wanted us to really adopt the way of speaking, the manner of speaking, the advanced RP that these characters were in, and all the rest of it. So I find that tricky because I'm more of an inside out. However, it was really, in one way, a lot of fun and quite liberating. So I kind of had to take five steps forward. And then every time I went home at night, just take a few steps back and fill it and then go back and do it and fill it. And, Mm. you know, I just think the danger is sometimes that if you work outside in, you might not go inside enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's brilliant. Brian, what do you think about all of this? I think it's a great question. (laughs) Because the style, you can look at it as any kind of piece is going to have a certain style. And that style might be close to what your normal style is. But the words that are chosen by the author, the behaviors that are described by the author are always a style. So in addition to what Gary said, I don't disagree at all with what Gary was talking about. I would just highlight that like in the Digging Into Text episode where we're looking at word choice or punctuation Mm -hmm. and how what that means to what's happening in the scene, the particular style that the scene might be written in or the particular behaviors that might be written or might be directed by the director, or maybe it's costume choices. You know, it could be the style of the costume or the style of the way it's shot. You know, the cinematography or the, or the, even the locations that you're in might contribute to this as well. All of that information is going to maybe change the way that you feel about doing the actions that you have to do to get the objectives met in the scene and taking all that in. And when you're analyzing If you know that kind of stylistic bent, then absolutely I think that you should do exactly how Gary described, which is you take in that information as if it's behavior just like you would any other information that was in the script, and you see, well, what does that do to me? How does that change the actions that I might be taking? How does that change the relationships that I might have with the other characters in the scene. And then, you know, like my favorite word, you extrapolate (laughs) from that and you internalize it. Maybe you'd make it more personal to you and put yourself in that kind of situation. Well, how does that feel to be in that situation? How does it feel if you're in an Aaron Sorkin piece to have to speak that fast? What does that do to you to speak Mm -hmm. that fast? Mm -hmm. And then, like anything, you kind of let go of it and then just ride it. That's what I would say. What about you, Andrea? Oh, I think you two have really nailed it. And I'm in total agreement with you both, whether it's inside out or outside in, depending on how extreme the style is or what the style orientation is. I think there are a number of choices you can make. But yeah, I tend to be also more inside out personally, although I'm with Meryl Street upon this. 
or Meryl's with me on it. Uh, you know, you find the right wardrobe and so many keys can line up for you. And for me, it was always, if I knew what shoes I, my character wore, I could solve a lot of problems. So I think sometimes there's a lot of value in adopting the external without a lot of questions asked and just giving it a go, almost like when you're performing in musical theater. You know, you just, you have to sing the song. And there's a reason why this section of the scene is a song, and it's not going to work unless you sing it, right? And so that presupposes, of course, you understand why you're singing the song and what you're trying to say with it. So I think that goes back to, you know, Gary, what you're saying is sometimes, yeah, the first thing you have to do because of the speed of it or the tempo of the production itself, whatever it is, you need to just get on the train. But you also need to make sure you understand what's happening on the train. So I love the way you've both expressed it, though. I think it's really right on. I think it can't solely, just going circling back to Emily's question, you know, taking care just of the style or the language is not the whole piece of it. Mm -hmm. So if it helps you to get on that train right away and it helps you to understand intention and the way you move and maybe the period in which it was made, the culture in which your character lived, all of those pieces, that's great. But you're still going to have to do the digging. It's like the students and I who've just been working on the Spoon Rivers. You know, this is very particular language and they are formatted in a particular way. And so, yes, I had to remind the students that they needed to understand every single word choice. Because as you mentioned, Brian, you have to remind yourself sometimes, this isn't just beautiful flowing language that I'm here to recite. That's the whole thing that, you know, Stanislavski moved us away from. I'm not up here to recite this language. I'm up here to have an experience. And the thing that I most need or want to say is this. And I have chosen these words as this character. This is my language. There's intention behind it. There's a very specific goal I have with using this language. And so in order to bring it full circle, you have to ultimately have full ownership of that language or that style, that way of moving, that way of speaking. It has to, it has to come back to being an organic experience at some level. So whether you arrive at that by beginning with the language and style or you come at it internally and then embrace it afterwards, I think the main thing is to close the loop and finally have full ownership of what you've been given by your playwright. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to, no matter which way you do it, you've got to cover all bases. Mm -hmm. If you look at Shakespeare, for instance, I mean, you can't avoid the language. Yeah. <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. I mean, it's so much of it is given and also the rhythm, you yes. know, whether it's iambic and flows or whether it's not iambic and it, mm -hmm. it doesn't flow in the meter. There's mm -hmm. clues there. So certainly to answer Emily's question there, that certainly will inform your acting choices. Mm -hmm. and, and to go back about what she said about language and rhythm, do you get the language and rhythm nailed? You know, it's like having to deal with an external, like an accent or a limp. You can do that in parallel during your rehearsals to what you're doing in terms of, you know, understanding the text and making it real for you and all the rest of it. You know, you could do it all together as you go along. Mm -hmm. I mean, you certainly can't deal with Mamet in a way that goes against that very street energy and street rhythm and all the mm -hmm, rest of it. And mm -hmm. yeah. and sometimes the language and the rhythm that we might say is a particular style is so defined 
mm-hmm. and kind of integral to the piece or the style, mm-hmm. it, it kind of takes care of itself. Yes. You know, you look at Pinter, right? Mm-hmm. Some of his words and phrases are actions and tactics in themselves. Mm-hmm. If you look at Lenny in The Homecoming, he, he, oh, there's, yeah. there's a speech in there where he talks about his car and he says something along the lines, I might be paraphrasing here, I'm going to cane her. I'm going to drive her into the ground. And really, that's fucking unsettling and provoking to whoever he's speaking to because he's feminizing the car and he's being quite brutal with it. But that's really built into the language. So how can you not embrace that? Mm -hmm. And I think you can do the work of what's going on behind Mm -hmm. this. Why is he saying it and all the things that we're saying? But in terms of the execution of it, it kind of takes care of itself. And, you know, with Pinter's pauses and silences that are Mm -hmm. famous, or infamous amongst those of you who have acted Pinter, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're there for a reason. And that rhythm kind of speaks for itself. You've got to be aware of it. And, you know, this is why badly acted Pinter can be way more painful <laughs> to endure than a badly acted Shakespeare play. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because actors with Pinter, I found, are doing too much. Mm-hmm. They're either racing through it and making it shallow and making it all external, or they really aren't honoring the rhythm of these evocative phrases that they use, which are actions in themselves, mm-hmm. or honoring the reasons behind the silences and the pauses, which are two very different things, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's fraught with booby traps. Yeah. So that's when nailing the language and the rhythm is absolutely necessary. Yes. You've got to negotiate that terrain. It becomes part of your means of expression. Exactly. As long as you understand what's underneath it. I think the only danger in grabbing the language too early is that you settle yourself into a rhythm that eliminates your curiosity. When you've decided at the first or second read that this is how it goes, and then you stop asking yourself questions about why you're saying what you're saying. That to me is the danger a little bit that you need to look out for. So you have to keep yourself honest about it. I want to touch on something that you guys have both kind of brought up, but I want to make it a little bit more explicit here. If you look at musical theater, Mm -hmm. or even opera, really, but for my purposes, um, musical theater, that there's nothing that is as prescribed as the rhythm and the notes that you have to sing Mm -hmm. as a song. Mm -hmm. It's described pretty explicitly. You have some leeway to play around with the rhythm somewhat, but you don't have that much leeway in a song. And this is a little bit more round the circle, but from starting from the given pace of it, is that when you take a song that you're going to be performing and you give meaning to why is it this note or this phrase, mm-hmm. why is there a rest here? Why is this set of syllables sung in this rhythm? then that in itself can be a raison d'etre, you know? Mm -hmm. The rhythm itself, the style itself can help you inform itself Mm -hmm. when the language, even if it's not completely written out in a meter, is highly stylized, Mm -hmm. that that in itself does something to you. But then, you know, close the circle. So what does that do to you? And so you justify it and you go back and you go into the internal of what you want to get done. But Mm. if you go from sheet music where you really don't have very much freedom at all to say it in your own rhythm, you have to say these particular notes pretty much and you have to say it in this particular rhythm pretty much. You know, in, in Stanislavski and opera, 
Mm-hmm. What they talk about is that the composer has helped you to find some emotional underpinning. Mm-hmm. The style, when you hit it, it doesn't hinder you. It helps you. It, it pushes you forward. Wonderful. Well, I hope that helps solve Emily's problems and is helpful to our listeners as well. As always, I love getting into it with you guys. Likewise. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here we go. Let's wrap this baby up with some recommendations. Every episode, we like to talk about some matter that we recommend to one another and to our listeners. So this week, I'm going to call on you, Brian. Brian, what have you seen or read that you can recommend to our listeners? Okay. I'm going to just say what I've been watching and I'm not sure if I'm recommending it to people Mm. or not, but I am rewatching the UK episodes of Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. (laughs) And it's when you were talking, Andrea, about the fatigue Mm -hmm. that has set in, in terms of like, just, it feels like the same thing over and over again. And, and just to kind of strike out with something new and artistic and, and really fulfilling. And I finding myself lately wanting to just kind of veg out. Yeah. And when I watch (laughs) something not be artistic and not have it be, you know, very highfalutin and Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares hits that spot for me. He's crass and he's abusive and I don't know what he's really like, but it seems like he's very passionate about his craft and what he feels like is right and wrong in the kitchen. And you can kind of watch it and go, well, I wouldn't be in that position. I'm so glad I'm not there being yelled at and being, you know, sworn at and having things thrown at me. So it's kind of, you know, a little bit cathartic and a little bit like, um, ha look at those people and how stupid they are for running a restaurant. But, um, but that's what I've been watching is, is the Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. They're on YouTube. You can find them. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, that's Very it. Nice. Nothing, nothing cool. <laughs> just a little bit of uh, crass fun. Well, there you go. So, if you're um, in the yeah. same uh, state of pandemic blase and you want something to just really entertain you, kick back with Gordon Ramsay. Gary, what yeah. about you? What have you uh, seen or read or heard lately that you'd like to share? Well, seeing as we've been talking about style and I've been talking about Pinter, I think. I'm going to recommend our listeners go on a bit of a busman's holiday and read some Pinter. You can pick up any of his plays. They're all absolutely brilliant. But I think if you really want to have a look at an example of style and where there is language that has a certain rhythm and a certain edge to it and a certain embodied sort of expression where a lot of it takes care of itself, and you can do no worse than Pinter. He's, He's certainly one of our greatest English playwrights and really does create atmospheric works and every actor should really look at his work because they are a challenge to act but also very brilliant pieces of writing where style rhythm is a very big part of the fabric so i would say birthday party is a really good one the homecoming is a really good one mm-hmm. i mean they're all good actually i'm biased because i think they're all he's one of my favorite writers so yeah but i would say you know the dumb waiter is a, a easily accessible one and that has a lot of rhythm and interplay um, but any play you pick up will have all of his stylistic peccadillos if you like and idiosyncrasies. Mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i'm saying any harold pinter dumb waiter is a good one homecoming is a good one caretaker is a good one betrayal is a good one there you go are there any bad ones no 
Okay. <laughs> I'm going to get to it right after I finish my Gordon Ramsay. Even even his first one, The Room, that was panned and is probably the least sophisticated of his, is still brilliant. And you can see his style there right from the start. I mean, he was once described, it's brilliant. He's, you know, he, says, he said that one way of looking at speech is to say that it's a constant stratagem to cover nakedness. Mm. And he's basically saying, we're all just covering. We're quiet to cover or we say a lot to cover. And it's like, well, mm. you can't hide then. <laughs> yeah. You know. Cool. What about you, Andrea? Well, I showed in my continuing effort to educate my daughter on some fun, worthwhile films. I showed her As Good As It Gets with Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt this week, mm. which she liked very much. I think initially she wasn't so sure about it, but, but she ended up falling for it. So lovely look back at Jack Nicholson's work. And it's it's kind of a fun exercise to describe to your 15-year-old who Jack Nicholson is. <laughs> <laughs> like, well... He's this iconoclastic actor. Oh, you have to go so far back to try and give her any kind of overview of his work. So I think there's there's more Jack Nicholson to come for us, definitely. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is next. Yeah, that's right. That's where I'm going to send her next. Yes, we're going to, we're going to check that out. Also, you know, this past week was Showreel Share Day on Twitter. So I was checking out a number of showreels this week, and those are remaining. So if you just go onto Twitter... And you hashtag show real share day. You can find lots of reels that have been uploaded. It's a very interesting exercise to take a look at the many different styles and approaches to the compilation. And it's inspiring too. It's inspiring to see work of people who may not be household names, but who are really being diligent and finding work and doing what we love. And then finally, I can't get it here in Spain. And it just kills me because I saw this movie on an airplane and I really want my daughter to see it. It's a documentary called The Biggest Little Farm. Have you guys seen this? Uh, no, I haven't. No. Uh, it came out in 2018, and it's a documentary made by a married couple. He is a documentary filmmaker who did a lot of like nature films, and they were living in this small apartment in Santa Monica, California. And they adopted a dog, and the dog was barking all the time, and the neighbors finally said, enough. And they decided to take advantage of this opportunity to find new housing and to uh, go after this dream that they had for some time to develop a sustainable farm. And they ended up buying this huge plot of land outside of Los Angeles, and it follows their trials and tribulations and triumphs in establishing this farm. And it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. So I highly recommend The Biggest Little Farm. You should be able to find it on Amazon Prime. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. Beautiful photography, of course, and really great storytelling. Great, Andrea. That sounds like a really great film. I'm going to add it to my list. Mm. And thank you to Emily for asking us that question and for searching for the answer. It's always, always good to hear from listeners about what's on their mind and the particular challenges that they're facing or the triumphs that they want to crow about. So if you have a question or a triumph, definitely let us know. You can get to us at Vagabond Actors on Twitter or on Instagram, or you 
you can ask us a question on our Facebook page. We definitely love to hear from you. And we love the inspiration for episodes. We're coming up on a year's worth of episodes, you guys. It's a little bit crazy. Wow. Yeah. We might actually have been hit a year by the time this comes out. We'll have a one-year anniversary. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Invite on all our guests to talk about (laughs) how wonderful we are. How their career has progressed since they've been on the podcast. Exactly. But so definitely get in touch with us. We definitely love to hear from you. And if you want to get in touch with us as individuals, Gary, where can people get in touch with you? Well, they can get hold of me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the same handle, at Gary Condes. Or you can visit my website, garycondes.com, and drop me an email, a bit old school, and put some words down, not emojis, and have an old-fashioned dialogue with me via my contact form on my website. It'd be lovely to hear from you. And Gary has classes starting all the time. And so definitely check out his website to find out what his latest offerings are. There's some good ones up there. I've been flirting with the idea of joining one of those classes. Thank you very Um, much. As well as being my PR assistant. Exactly. Well, I, you know, I got to get that discount, you know, I, you know, <laughs> I haven't worked in, oh, in you're a working year. It, yeah. Working it. yeah, I'm working you. Mm-hmm. What about you, Andrea? Where can people get in touch with you if they want to? Well, they'll find you. me here in Mallorca, very slyly sending a bunch of emojis to uh, Gary's text number. Um, and when <laughs> I'm not doing that, you can find me on Instagram at Andrea Helene three or on Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene. And I am at Brian Casp on Twitter and on Instagram. And I also have a Facebook page, I think, that is languishing somewhere. And until next week, I think that's going to do it from us. We hope you stay safe and stay creative and and take care. Until next week. Thank you, folks, for listening. Thank you, everybody. Bye.